Hello, you're listening to ReachMD XM, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host of the Clinician's Roundtable, Boondocks Medicine, Dr. Andrew Krakowski. With me today is Dr. Barry Cunningham, pediatric dermatologist from Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego. How are you, Dr. Cunningham? Thank you for joining us. I'm doing great, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Cool. So today we're going to be discussing zero dermapigmentosum in a small town in Guatemala. But before we get to your travel experience in Guatemala, I want you to tell us a little bit about this thing called xeroderma pigmentosum. Well, first of all, xeroderma pigmentosum is not only just a mouthful, it's an incredibly rare condition. But from here forward, I'll probably refer to it as XP because it's a lot simpler. So for the audience, when I refer to XP, it does refer to xeroderma pigmentosum, which is an incredibly rare um, inherited disease that is inherited by males and females alike. It is autosomal recessive. It's carried by mutations and genes that are critical for DNA repair. As you may know, the body is exposed to ultraviolet radiation on a regular basis in all of us every day to varying degrees. And in individuals who carry the gene for XP, they're missing an enzyme, which is absolutely critical and vital for the repair of DNA damage that occurs on a regular basis. What happens if they don't have that enzyme? Well, these individuals who are missing this enzyme or their enzyme is not performing in a normal way, any amount of radiation to the skin, just sunlight basically hitting the skin is a form of radiation. And that amount of radiation to the skin is enough to cause their DNA to be damaged such that their skin forms into skin cancers. Does that include radiation from indoor lights, for example? It can include uh, radiation from indoor lights. Certain light sources are, quote unquote, safe for individuals with XP. And other light sources, halogen light sources, for example, can be incredibly damaging. So there are various forms of lights that are safe for indoor use, and then there are some that are more damaging. How many people in, do you think in the United States have uh, this condition? Uh, it's estimated to be one in a million, literally. Uh, approximately 250 people in the United States currently have this disorder. So we're talking about an incredibly rare disorder uh, worldwide. It's about anywhere from 1,000 to 2,000 people are affected. Wow. And how might you, as a healthcare professional, suspect this diagnosis in your patient? Well, first of all, it's not something that you think of very commonly because of how rare it is. But often the first thing that people notice is wrong, and it usually comes from the parents. The parents usually notice that the babies early in life, in the first few months of life, have an inordinate sensitivity to sunlight. So they may give you the history that I took the baby in the baby carriage with the umbrella covering him and he had normal clothing on and I had him under the tree on the soccer field uh, while the older sibling played soccer for an hour and lo and behold when I took the baby home he had a blistering sunburn. So in an excessive amount of response to a normal degree of sun exposure would be the first clue that something was wrong. Is that a delayed reaction or can they actually get pain immediately from the sun itself? It's both actually and there are several forms of XP. Some are characterized more by an immediate pain in response to ultraviolet uh, radiation. So these babies, the minute their skin is exposed to the sun, literally, they may start to cry incessantly and express um, pain the only way that they can, which is through crying. Other children don't have pain on exposure to sun in infancy, but they may have more of a delayed reaction to sunlight and, and blistering and sunburning. And then other children have more of a kind of indolent, chronic expression of their disease early on, and they may start to freckle excessively. So, you know, we all see children to various degrees, depending on their ethnicity and their sun exposure. And we all have children who may freckle, especially fair children. But we're talking about, you know, a one or a two or a three-month-old baby who's already starting to 
to freckle, which is incredibly unusual and, and should be a, um, a warning sign that you should think about this disorder. Even red-haired children from Ireland. That's correct. Don't You don't see freckles at that age That's normal. correct. Okay. That's absolutely correct. Are there other symptoms that these children might present with? Um, yeah, as you can imagine, they're missing the repair enzyme, not just in their skin, but everywhere. And so the ultraviolet radiation um, hitting their their eyes can cause the babies to have a lot of pain or photophobia when the sun hits the eyes. So the parents will tell you that early on they may suspect something's wrong because the baby kind of squints excessively and kind of bends the head down and really avoids sunlight and shows signs of photophobia early on. As a clinician, how do you confirm the diagnosis of xeroderma pigmentosum? Well, we suspect it early on by the history, and then our examination can also confirm it. So when we see the early signs of um, freckling and photo damage, you might see, for example, a four-year-old who comes in with lips that are dry, it's erotic, um, photo damage, they're kind of lusterless, they may be cracked, they may be fissured, and then they may have um, actinic keratosis on the lips of a four-year-old. You know, those kinds of physical findings may increase your suspicion on examination. So that's one of the ways that we diagnose it. The way that we confirm it then, um, once our suspicion is raised, would be to do, um, most commonly we do, um, testing of the skin by doing a skin biopsy. We take a piece of skin from, it doesn't have to be affected skin. So it, oh. it can be skin that's protected on the buttocks, for example. It doesn't matter where you take the biopsy from. And we generally try to take a protected area so they don't have a scar in the middle of their face, for example. Take a small piece of skin, about three to four millimeters in diameter, suture it. We send that specimen to um, a genetics lab who grows the skin up into certain cells, fibroblasts. And then once the fibroblast culture is grown. It usually takes three or four weeks for the fibroblast to grow kind of to confluence. Once we have that fibroblast population, we then can send it to a lab which can measure the fibroblast response to exposure to ultraviolet radiation. So there's controls. You can take, Mm. you know, if you biopsy your skin and my skin and you grow up our fibroblasts and you expose our skin to ultraviolet radiation, well, there's going to be some damage and there's going to be some cell death. But there'll be control values, and then these children have a tremendous amount of cell death for very, very low levels of radiation. Dr. Cunningham, please let me know also how important is family history in making this diagnosis of XP, as you call it? Um, In most cases, because it's autosomal recessive, there's usually no family history of this condition. So it's much like some of the other autosomal recessive disorders. Both parents are silent carriers. They don't know they're carriers. And then when the Chances are that they come together and they're both carriers. They have an offspring. They have a 25% chance of each subsequent offspring of being affected. So once XP is in a family, there may be a family history if that mother and father choose to continue to reproduce. But the first child in a family to be affected is usually, it's usually the first one for them to be aware of. Earlier, you mentioned the fact that you can take the biopsy from any skin because the entire skin is is affected. Mm -hmm. Uh, Does that mean that you could expect cancers that normally occur down the line at age about two to three, it sounds like, popping up on places that are not sun exposed? Good question. No. So you do need, it's like a double hit, a two hit phenomenon. So you need the gene defect, which these children have, and you can diagnose from any part of the body, but you also need the sun exposure. You need the ultraviolet radiation on top of that. And so theoretically, you can get skin cancers developing anywhere, but in reality, we usually only see them in the sun exposed distribution most commonly, as you can imagine, the face really is the most common location. You can see them on the dorsum of the hands, sometimes on the arms and lower extremities. But really, by and large, 95% of these skin cancers are occurring, unfortunately, for the children on the face. And the nose takes the brunt of it because it does 
stick out more in some people more than others. Thank you very much, Dr. Cunningham. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but the nose does tend to take the brunt of it and does express more. So in more advanced cases, the nose can become fairly unrecognizable as a nose and it becomes sort of formless and structureless and you can't even recognize it as a nose because of all the chronic scarring and the erosions that occur from the skin cancers that, which continually develop. So this double hit phenomenon must kind of guide management. Absolutely. So prevention is really key in this disorder as it is in many disorders, but particularly this one. So, um, you know, educating the family about um, protecting especially their face and, and their um, sun-exposed regions of their body is really key. And what sort of protection measures are we talking about? Well, for most children, for example, in the United States who have all the resources at their disposal and they're not limited financially, what we usually recommend is um, vigorous sunscreen. And we're not just talking about when you and I put on our sunscreen in the morning and then we go out and go our merry way and do whatever we want. We're talking about strict sunscreen, SPF 60 or higher. And then on top of that, a physical barrier. So these children will, in addition to having long sleeve shirts, long pants or tights, clothing, every exposed part of their body is covered in clothing except for their face because it's not really practical to have the face, you know, draped in, in fabric. So sunscreen is applied everywhere, clothing on top of that, thick, opaque clothing, not clothing where any kind of ultraviolet radiation can penetrate. And then for the face, we have them when they have to go outside. For example, if they need to go to the doctor and they have to transport from the house to the car, then they use UV protectant hoods that will drape over their head, their big hoods that are made of sun protective fabric to varying degrees of opacities and thickness and weights. And then over their eyes and nose, there's a, a shield, a UV protectant shield that's transparent that they can see through so that their vision is not compromised. Now, what is a UV meter and what does that have to do with zero dermapigmentosum? A UV meter is one of those gadgets that really has transformed these children and their families' lives in terms of the practicality of it. Because it used to be before the UV meters were widely commercially available, you would counsel the family to do the best that they possibly could to protect the patients from ultraviolet radiation. But there are gray areas, uh, much as the case in life anytime. And so there would be situations where they weren't sure if, for example, the lights in their dentist's office were okay, or if they had to have a procedure where the surgical lights safe, were they not safe? If they went into an, a covered mall, were those lights safe, for example? But now there's UV meters. They're battery operated. They, they're very affordable, $100 or less to get one. Tell us a little bit about the prognosis for these patients, please. Well, left undiagnosed and untreated, it's uniformly fatal. For most forms of XP, there are some milder forms that are not as severe, but those are the rare exceptions. For most individuals with pigmentosum, if they're not diagnosed early in life and they're not treated early in life, meaning in the first five years, it's uniformly fatal. And what they die of generally is metastatic skin cancers, basal cell, squamous cell, and malignant melanoma, which metastasize just as they would with any other skin tumor, but they metastasize much, much earlier because they're much more aggressive and they begin at a much earlier time in their life. Now, if a child is diagnosed early in life and the family is very vigilant about protection, as is the case very often in the United States, and they do everything humanly possible to protect the child from ultraviolet radiation, keeping them indoors, restricting all of their activity to indoor activity or nighttime activity, sunscreen, and routine dermatologic and ophthalmologic care, they can almost approach a normal lifespan. 
So it's so, a really a dramatic difference hmm. in, in what is expected in somebody who's diagnosed early versus late. A ray of hope, if you will. I want to thank Dr. Barry Cunningham from Rady Children's Hospital of San Diego. We've been discussing zero dermapigmentosum today. For more information on XP, as it's also known, or the efforts underway to help people suffering from this condition, please email Barry Cunningham at B-C-U-N-N-I-N-G-H-A-M, that's B Cunningham, at rchsd.org stands for Rady Children's Hospital San Diego. You can also learn more about the XP Family Support Group by visiting xpfamilysupport.org or by calling 916-628-3814. I'm Dr. Andrew Krakowski. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable, Boondocks Medicine on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For questions or comments, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. You can also visit the Boondocks Medicine website at www.boondocksmedicine.com. Thank you for listening. And remember, when you're out there, be there.